With that, we're going to consider today uh, the topic of want, worry, and need. Want, worry, and need. And I want to begin with this verse from Jesus, Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. He says, and Jesus answered, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why would I start with that passage when we're going to talk about Jesus' powerful passage around worry? I think the reason we're going to begin here is because the human heart is a menagerie of artificial needs. We live in a society that, that is so inundated us with this messaging that says you need these things to be a complete human being. But all of the messaging pushes us toward a self-absorbed, self-focused reality. I'm reading a very profound um, book right now uh, by, a, um, by a physician uh, and psychologist uh, he's from Canada, and it's the first time he's had a book that's gotten really popular in America. He co-wrote it with the son. His name's Gaber Mate. Um, and the book is called The Myth of Normal. It's a, it's a tome, essentially, like, of his life works. He's, done, he's written multiple books. He wrote a book on ADHD called Scattered Minds. He wrote a book on addiction called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Um, he's, in, he's a fascinating thinker. And one of his key things, he actually gets a lot of pushback um, from, from circles within Western medicine because he is obsessed with the fact that we kind of, kind of carte blanche is put... We put diagnoses on people um, without even considering where they've come from, what their backgrounds are. So he, or he would argue someone that has ADHD that grows up in a really healthy home is not going to function the same to that particular disorder, the same as someone that has grown up in a, in a home where a lot of trauma happened. And bro, he's like, it's very complex and nuanced, and we tend to not take into consideration the whole person. And then his other piece is that our psychological state plays deeply into our physical well-being. Um, and so, and he says, Western medicine has separated mind from body in a way that's not helpful. I would argue as Christians, we would say even further, we have separated the spiritual from the, the material. And, now, and then on top of that, we also are dealing with the mind separated from body. And it's like, it's like kind of multiple fragmentations that creates all kinds of problems. There's a famous story about Bob Dylan, um, and I don't know if many of you know much about Bob Dylan, but many of you do. And Bob Dylan became quite cantankerous uh, in his career. Uh, I mean, he was kind of touted as this, this great spokesperson for like the civil rights movement, and, and there was all this pressure on him to be like the guy that was going to, you know, lead the youth of America into greater social awareness, and he just was like, I just like to write music, man. I don't want this pressure on me. And it, and it made him really frustrated. And, and there was just, he just felt like this unbelievable part. And he got more and more edgy in interviews. But there's this famous moment, it's, there's video footage, I think it's in the um, Martin Scorsese uh, um, uh, documentary, I think it's called No Direction Home, where uh, Dylan's in a limo and he's in London. And it's on the tour where everyone in London is like booing him through the whole concert. And then he does a section uh, of, 
acoustic songs and then everyone loves him. It's like, it was such a complicated time for him. But these two fans run up to the window of the limo and they're begging him for an autograph. They're like begging him for an autograph. And uh, um, he, they said to him, we need your autograph. Uh, and as they beg him through the rear door window of the, in the singer-songwriter's limo and Dylan demurred, no, you don't need it. If you needed it, I would give it to you. <laughs> now you're like, that's just mean. Is it though? I actually think it's a pretty profound statement. But Dylan's like, why do you need my, what is my autograph going to do to improve your life? And yet, this is a picture of the ways in which we believe certain things will bring a type of satisfaction. And what we find is when we chase those things that are illusions, that actually don't bring fulfillment, it fragments the heart and the mind, and it brings about a deterioration of our mental well-being. You know, honestly, just even confessing to you my own anxieties around fears of, of my book failing or fears around just, I just don't like self-promotion, I don't like what it does to my mind. There's something healing about that. There's something so good about just getting it off your chest so that you can move back into a place which we're going to see is the key, uh, is, is a place of simplicity. And as Kierkegaard wisely said, simplicity blinds the devil. That man shall not live on simply what the body needs, not that what the body needs isn't important, but what is most important is that we were made for God and for one another. And if the things that God has given us to enjoy Him and one another become the things that are most important to us, it will bring a disintegration of the heart and mind. I, I want to just share um, an, another quote. It's from this guy, Eric Fromm. He is a, he's a philosopher uh, and psychologist. And he, he wrote this in the, his book, The Sane Society. He said, the fact that millions of people share the same vices does not make these vices virtues. The fact that they share so many errors does not make the errors to be truths. And the fact that millions of people share the same forms of mental pathology does not make these people sane. And I think that, that we have believed in, it's like a, it's like a, like a mass level delusion that if everybody is doing it, then it must be right. It must be true. Uh, but here's the fact um, in, in our current state. We live at the, the cutting edge uh, of, of medicine and, uh, and extension of life and uh, material prosperity and yet the United States the richest country in history and the epicenter of the globalized economic system 60% of adults have chronic disorders such as high blood pressure or diabetes and over 40% have two or more conditions nearly 70% of Americans are on at least one prescription drug that would be me more than half take two Gabriel Mate says, in my own country, Canada, up to half of all baby boomers are on track for hypertension within a few years if current trends continue. And among women, there is a disproportionate elevation in diagnosis of potentially disabling autoimmune conditions like, like MS. Among the young, non-smoking related cancers seem to be on the rise. Rates of obesity along with multiple health risks um, it poses are going up in many countries including Canada, Australia, and notably the United States where over 30% of the adult population meet that criteria. 
And it says, recently Mexico has surpassed its northern neighbor in the unenviable category with the result that 38 Mexicans are diagnosed with diabetes every hour. It's fascinating to me that those are the stats when we have all of these advancements. And his point is that something else is going on. Uh, and, and, it, and it has to do with our psychological well-being. And I believe uh, that having not finished the book yet, and I hope that this is where he points to, is that it's, it's driven by, by a culture that obsesses on, on our personal well-being over the well-being of others. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Verse 25 is where we begin. And I want to just state this. We worry about the wrong things. We worry about the wrong things. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Now, I want to just start by stating the obvious. Many people are very uncomfortable with this text because it seems almost cruel. How would you preach a text like this in a place of deep poverty? where there is starvation. How could we say, don't worry, about, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear? That just seems inhumane. Isn't the, isn't the responsibility of the Christian to care for the physical needs of others? And the answer is yes. And that is not what Jesus is saying in this text. Notice who he is addressing. He doesn't say anything about worrying about what your neighbor shall eat or what your neighbor shall drink. What he's calling us to focus in on is our own tendency toward a self-centered existence. The issue, he, got, he already got done saying in the Lord's Prayer that we are to pray that God provide us with food. We're told, uh, when he, later in Matthew, uh, we're told that in the, in the great white throne judgment uh, passage, Jesus says, many will come to me and say, um, he, they'll, they'll come to him and he'll say, listen, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And he said, when you did it to the least of, least of my brethren, you did it unto me. So this is not about us not caring about poverty <laughs> or us not caring about people not having the basic needs uh, uh, in the world. And this isn't about just trust God and do nothing either. This is a question about what is the root of your worry because it's also not a worry about nothing uh, passage either there are many things when we are living in a rebellious state when we are living in a self-centered existence uh, we we are going to be worried Jesus wouldn't actually tell us not to worry unless worry was going to be a problem for the human heart when the human heart is functioning in that default setting of living in the flesh, of being focused, of being of eyes turned inward upon self, where my needs are the most important thing about me. One of the crippling aspects of, of mental illness is how hard it is to break free from our own brains. How we can spin out and become obsessed with what's going on in my mind, how I feel, what I need. And, and I understand that there can be chemical problems that actually create that that reality I've experienced myself I actually was really harsh I remember when I first taught through the Sermon on the Mount it's the first passage I ever memorized and I remember saying worry 
is always driven by sin. And that's not a very fair statement. Um, I think sin can lead to worry, and unconfessed sin brings fragmentation to the life. But there's a lot of sin that we're not even aware that we're doing. Um, and we live in sinful worlds with sinful bodies and sinful minds. That's why I shared that Eric Fromm uh, passage is that we don't even realize that we have all drank the same Kool-Aid. That we worry about the wrong things because we have a society that has actually encouraged us to worry about things that maybe we should or should not worry about. I just read a really fascinating article in the New Yorker on why, um, why uh, people on the political left uh, are, are more afraid of COVID today than people on the political right. Uh, and, and he said that there's a, there's a hangover. He said there's, there's the, the, safe, the safety that we have in our society right now is, is, is pretty, I mean, there's always the fear and the possibility of something getting us. Sickness has always been a part, but why are people so afraid to let go of, of the mask mandate, for example? And one of the things that the, the writer said is because, because the left actually uh, media put a greater emphasis on fear as a corrective to the, what they viewed was the right's nonchalance and carelessness about, and now people are having a hard time letting go of the fear because they fed on a news feed that constantly told them they were gonna die. Um, now, this is a, a fascinating, obviously I'm not picking a political side, I'm saying this goes both ways. We are, we all of us um, are subject to a multitude of voices that are coming in at us that we have very little control over. Um, I sometimes think that maybe the safest thing we could do is kill our smartphones. Um, and honestly, most of my anxiety over last week was that I was being told that I had to be on social media every day to like push this thing. And I'm like, I refuse to sell my, try to sell myself to an algorithm. Like it just doesn't seem right or natural. I don't care if I'm going to, if I'm an influencer of algorithms. It just doesn't seem like a healthy pursuit. And anyone that can tell me that it is a healthy pursuit, uh, you're deluding yourself and dehumanizing yourself, which is, I think, the goal uh, of social media. The whole thing, this constant shifting of algorithms is to force you to be on your device more, to play the game. And it's a game that actually, I think, dehumanizes and creates uh, a longing for, for artificial needs. And so I think that this is something that we need to understand. When he says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body or what you'll wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes, is that Jesus is wanting us to be focused on the things that actually bring life. He is the author of life. And life for us as Christians comes always through the good death. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That we were told that once we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that there is a spiritual death, that there is a reality in which when we live for self, we are living for an illusion, something that doesn't actually exist. And that is, when we become our own gods, we actually are choosing to be something that does not exist. Uh, it, we are choosing to be a false god. And a false god is an idol. And 
false worship will always lead to heartbreak. And this is why Jesus is telling us, don't listen to the, to the lies of this world as we considered last week. There are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God and then there is the kingdom of Satan. Uh, and the devil is, is the murderer from the beginning. He is, his ground of being is not in God. It, he, is, he is himself uh, almost an active or personal nothingness. And he wants to bring us into a space where we amount to nothing as well. And this is why we have to understand that if the whole world we are told in 1 John lies under the sway of the wicked one, then we need to understand that there is, there is, there is evil in the water and the greatest and most effective evil that we can buy into is to listen to what the world tells us we need when those needs are artificial. We worship what we cannot live without. This is a principle that we need to understand. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 to 30, Jesus goes on to give two very profound illustrations. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or, sh or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? I love that he uses the birds of the air. Uh, and I love that he says, they do not sow or reap or stow away in barns. I want to just point out, first of all, that this is not a passage that is telling us not to work. In fact, the birds, uh, <laughs> sparrows are, are busy bodies. They're always working. They're just not worried. And they're not worried because they do what they were created to do. This is the point. Human beings being made in the image of God, being image bearers means that we are made for a relationship and we actually have been given a unique desire that the rest of the animal kingdom does not have. There's also a reality of self-awareness and that desire is meant to be placed upon God, to be one with God, and to love God and to love neighbor. But as we considered last week, our sin has created... Um, uh, motivated desire which is supposed to be a desire for God to be one with God has created a desire for what our neighbor has and so we are driven by a longing for things that we don't have and when we have what we thought we needed and it doesn't bring the satisfaction it does not actually lead us to truth it tends to lead us toward the desire for the next thing and this is why you have the famous line, I can't get no satisfaction, is that, is that the artificial needs lead to more and more beliefs that if I have this thing, then I'll be happy. And you get that thing and you're like, okay, if I get this thing, uh, then I will be happy. I actually was meeting, talking with my counselor recently and I was telling him, uh, uh, and he just released me. He told me that I'm, he goes, I think, I think you, you don't need me anymore. And I was talking with Darcy yesterday, and I'm like, kind of just want to pay him to be my friend. 
because I really like that guy. <laughs> um, she's like, I think you still need him personally. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I remember something he said to me was really profound, is that I have this very, I have a narrative about my life and that my life has been marked by almost success and primarily failure and that I'm really good at being optimistic around failure, that I, I have a way of, of framing it to keep myself from falling into despair. And he goes, well, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, I'm like, like music, like I totally, like, you know, I thought I was going to be famous and I failed. And he's like, he goes, I don't know if most people would view that. You got a record deal with a major label at 22 years old. That's further than 99% of bands get. And I'm like, I'm like, but nobody knows. There's, it's just never enough. There's always someone to measure your life against that has more than what you have. And there will always be someone better than you. Always. It doesn't matter if you are the best in the world. Someone will come along and actually improve upon it or be better. And that is a really hard thing because we, our desires are misguided and misdirected. And we don't know how to actually look at our lives in a healthy way. And it's one of the things he taught me. He's like, Josh, you need what he called psychological flexibility. You need to be able to see the underbelly of a thing, but you also need to see the positive because you, 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 you just tend to think, see things with a very extreme lens. Uh, and, and I think that this, this problem is, is that the sin creates complexity and complexity creates, uh, creates um, difficulty understanding and difficulty understanding creates frustration and frustration creates fragmentation and so and so it goes. What I love about this is that birds and flowers, he, Jesus uses very simple things. Birds are not, you know, flying around pondering why they are. <laughs> why am I here? <laughs> and I don't want to build nests like that one. I want to do my own kind of nest. Like that's not how birds function. There's plenty of cartoons that, you know, there's fairy tales that love to portray or, you know, anthropomorphize animals and, you know, try to create jealousy or rivalry between animals, but it just isn't a thing. Uh, it, this is one of the things that makes us unique is that we have the capacity for self-awareness but we also have the capacity unlike the rest of God's creation we're the only thing in creation that seems to do do everything but what we were created to do <laughs> to give ourselves to everything but what we were created to be given to Kierkegaard actually wrote a powerful essay in his Christian discourses uh, on this particular passage and he had this statement and it was something that I read when I first became a believer it was when I first re read his discourses and it was a line that just stuck with me I've never been able to find it because he worded it differently it was like I just paraphrase I'm the king of like I think I have a good memory but really I'm just the king of assimilation and so it was really hard when I was writing the book trying to find all the quotes because I quoted everything wrong because I was just drawing it from my memory <laughs> they're like Actually, we've looked the whole internet and we've not found this. I'm like, then I said it. Great, I said it. <laughs> They're like, well, we found three people that sound just like it, but just with a couple words changed. I said it. <laughs> uh, it's not true. I didn't. I, I assimilated it. Um, but his, the line is this, simplicity blinds the devil. Simplicity blinds the devil. 
And there's a real beauty in that. Our third pillar is simplicity. And what we mean by simplicity is not doing less things. What we mean by simplicity is asking the question, does everything serve the main thing? Does everything serve that central affection, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's a powerful question. Because here, what we're told is, 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 is very important. When we set our hearts upon artificial needs, when we begin to believe what our society tells us we can't live without, what we end up finding is that the society unwittingly is under the sway of the dominions of darkness. And Satan's deepest joy is when we enter into false worship. And whatever it is that you think you cannot live without that isn't God, it is your idol. I just want you to know that. It can be your marriage, and it can be good things, your marriage, your kids, your friends, but it can be your your position in life, your job. I think about this for uh, people with addiction. It's like, I can't live without alcohol. When we have that, we, this is one of the things that's so beneficial about fasting. It's the ability to say, I can actually live without this, at least for a time. Can a person live without food? Not forever, but you can for a little bit. And the point is, is that you do have, God has given us the spirit, not of fear and of worry, but of power and of love and of self-control. Um, and when the Holy Spirit is in charge, uh, it frees us from I want to be worried about the well-being of my neighbor. And I want to be worried about whether or not I am honoring God. But when those are healthy worries that lead us to action, the kind of worry that is not beneficial is, I'm worried that nobody likes me. I'm worried that I'm, worried that I'm not going to have what he or she has, that I'll never be happy. Uh, it, it's when that worry is self it, when it's turned inward upon ourselves, we should be deeply concerned when we see a, someone uh, hurting around us. But the kind of worry that Jesus is condemning is the kind of worry that actually keeps us from even being able to see the person on the street because we're so self-absorbed. It's the kind of worry that keeps us from being able to see someone that's hurting. I hate that because I tend toward a, I, because I come from such a broken background, I tend to have a really hard time breaking free from self-focus. And I, my wife is extraordinary at just, just, she is so good at just seeing someone's pain in a room before she even knows them. She, she's so other oriented, it just becomes natural to her. And that's something that we should all be, if it doesn't come natural, we need to remember that we can't say, well, this is just the way I was born. Because if you have been born again, then you are new creation. And you have the same Jesus that I have and that everyone else has. And this is why we need one another because though we may be born again, we still have Christ living within these glitchy vehicles called us. <laughs> and that's a reality. And that's why it's not good for a man to be alone. But the fact is here is that Jesus connects these realities of like our worry tends to be focused in on artificial needs. And, and he compares it to things that, that that's not even a part of their being. They're not capable the flower and the bird is not capable of worrying. It's not about not working. It's about being outward 
outward with our focus rather than inward obsessed. I, I like this that he says at the end, oh, you of little faith. And here he connects like that self-focused worry with unbelief. And unbelief is this, is that when the enemy gets us focused in on things, when the, when the lies of the world get a hold of our hearts and our minds and our, and our hearts are set upon artificial needs, the natural reality is that it begins to force us to question God's goodness because we think that if God is good, He would give us all, He would fulfill all the artificial needs. Like if, I, if God is good, you know, uh, this is this classic thing. If God is actually good and He loved me, then I wouldn't hurt. If God actually cared about me, then He would, he would provide me with, with whatever it is. Whatever it is that you think you need to be satisfied. It could be a spouse. It could be a job. It could be material possessions. It could be physical health. But it's God, the enemy... It, the enemy wants us to focus and he will take advantage of us when we're sick. He'll take advantage of us when we're mentally fragile and he will get us to focus in on how God is letting us down. It's exactly what he did in the garden with our first parents. That was, did God really say? Oh, what he's actually doing is he's trying to keep you from becoming God. Becoming a God. He's not, he's withholding from you. And Jesus is so honest about existence. He says there will be a day when sin will no longer be a part of the human experience, when death will no longer have its hold on, on, on existence. And he conquered death and sin on the cross. And he wants us to put our trust in that, that we might find that he said, I have said these things to you that you may have peace, but in this world you will have tribulation. And we like act like he didn't say that. He told us that the world was going to get more difficult before he returns, not better. And yet we still find movements within Christendom all the time trying to create heaven on earth. The reason that God kicked our first parents out of Eden is because heaven on earth in a sinful state just leads us to a greater belief that we don't need God. This is why we live in a time, it's not, life is not a playground, it's a battleground. There is a spiritual reality in a war, and life is not easy, it's actually impossible. It's terminal. But God is good. And He loves us, and He knows that. I don't need to know why I'm suffering, I just need to know that He has done something about it. And that's why we need to be a cross-centered community and why we need to live by faith, not by sight. And faith is this, I, I always say that. You have little faith, listen, you're trusting in your experience and your felt needs, and you want the wrong things, <laughs> uh, and it's because you actually are believing the wrong thing. You believe that if I have, you fill in the blank, I will be complete. And what that leads to is, is, is a greater dissatisfaction and a despair because when the thing that you worship doesn't actually serve you, it leads to greater despair. Like, man, I, this is why nihilism is so grand in our world right now. Why suicide is increasing with an alarming rate. Attempted suicide among young people today because society is built upon fear fear of the climate, fear of the economy, all of these fears. And on top of that, society is built upon the self 
is the center of the universe. And, and when those things combine, it just creates uh, catastrophic results. And so it is that we need to understand that for us, we are called to put our faith not in the things that only break our hearts, but to put our faith in Christ. And what that means is it's a disposition of trust toward Christ that gives Him the freedom to be God in and through our lives. It gives Him the right to rule our lives. It's letting Jesus be in us, through us, and for us what we cannot be for ourselves. Look at the close of this. Because we are made for God and for one another. Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34, he says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So he, Jesus isn't denying the need for food, or the need for clothing, or the need for shelter. He's like, God knows that you need those things. God knows that humanity needs those things. And the way that God meets the needs of humanity is by utilizing a people whose eyes are fixed on Jesus so that they can become conduits of actually handling those needs. What a powerful reality that is. But look what he says. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He's not saying live some sort of ascetic life where some sort of self-imposed poverty, that is never the goal of Jesus. There have been many Christians who have taught a self-imposed poverty throughout history. That is not the focus of the gospel. God has blessed certain people that can handle money with unbelievable ability to be extremely generous. Uh, and it's not about wealth. It's the question is, is what is it that defines you as a human being? And what is your God? What is it that you cannot live without? And I, I love this. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be given to you as well. It's, it's disordered loves. Order your affections correctly and everything else falls into its proper place. And people are like, well, what if that doesn't happen? I, I would just simply ask you the question, have you truly actually ordered your affections properly? Is your love of God the supreme desire in your life? Is your desire your supreme desire to make Jesus known? That's a powerful question, isn't it? And the only reason you would want to make Jesus known is because you know Him. And the only reason you don't want to make Jesus known is because you probably don't know Him. And if, he, if that convicts you, you're like, man, well, that's kind of, that's very black and white. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to tell you. I would argue that the times that I become ashamed of the gospel is when self-focus is what I'm, I'm my, own, my own conscientiousness around myself and what people think of me prevents me from sharing Christ with someone, then I would have to say that myself is more important than Jesus. Because if Jesus actually was the primary concern, then I wouldn't care if people thought I was stupid for believing in Jesus. But we actually care a lot about what people think of us. The fear of man is a very real thing. Look at the amount of churches that collapse on orthodoxy because they're afraid of actually coming under, under some sort of attack. I, a really tragic thing just happened. It made me so mad. A really dear friend of mine who is 
loves Jesus and is a faithful pastor and he's just written a new book and he wrote an article for Gospel Coalition and that this article uh, was ar around sexuality um, and what is it how does the how does human sexuality the sexual union uh, how does it actually reflect um, the church's union with Christ and what's fascinating is that he came under a massive Twitter mob attack um, and he immediately uh, the article was taken down I read through the article there is literally nothing in it nothing in it that is unorthodox whatever they don't like the language they don't like the church so conservatives were like that's yucky sex is yucky don't compare Jesus in the church to sex gross that literally was like the response but then the other side left feminists was like this is misogynistic and a continued purpose of pushing women down into subjection to men it was like they weren't even in agreement on what they were attacking him over and the, the point is is that the attacks were not based in reality he was literally just he was actually just restating what's been said by Augustine and many church fathers uh, and whatever you can like his writing or not like his writing but the fact that he got canceled over an article had to step down from the gospel coalition um, uh, board uh, to avoid embarrassment because all these like angry it was like angry reformed guys and angry and angry feminists it was like and and all of a sudden this guy's like I'm I'm totally pro-woman and I'm pro-scripture and I'm not unorthodox and you just didn't like the tone and all of a sudden I'm just like done and I just think this is the picture of the the age in which we live it's like there in here's one of the things that was the most alarming it how it connects to this message is the amount of people that actually were supporters of him endorsed him that actually publicly came out and withdrew their endorsement to avoid coming under the same attack oh just grossed me out just spineless in my opinion because if they endorse the book they know that the book was orthodox they just didn't want to go down in flames because their kingdom is more important than the kingdom of Jesus and shame on gospel coalition for not doing something about it that's my opinion I'll say it I'll just say it cancel me I don't care I'd probably be healthier if I was canceled <laughs> this is the thing about worry is that worry self-worry is driven by our desire to protect our little kingdoms and our kingdoms are tiny and they're fragile the kingdoms of men come and go this is why I'm not a political person it's because the kingdoms of men come and go and my loyalty is to the kingdom of Jesus our call to live peaceably in a society is driven by this reality of that I want to do all that I can to live as peaceably as possible to share the gospel of Jesus with as many as possible and this is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God worry about the past is needless don't worry about yesterday but healing over the past is necessary I used to misuse this this verse we shouldn't worry about the past our past but we do need to heal if there's things that need to be healed we don't need to worry about the future it's useless 
because it causes us to stress about things that may or may not come, things that aren't even reality. They're out of our control. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare for the future. But the only way to prepare for the future is to live in the moment. And what Jesus actually goes on to say is don't worry about the past or the future, which are the two thieves that most of us are crucified between, uh, is that is, is the reality is this. He actually says there's actually a lot <laughs> to worry about just today. It's hard enough to navigate through a day. How do we survive a day? And how do we survive any days if we're constantly living in a time that no longer exists or a time that's not yet come? Not going to be beneficial. Worry is physically dangerous. It creates lethargy and ulcers and a plethora of other physical ailments. If the mind is worn out with fears, the body will follow. And I just want you to know, my own anxiety and worries, I remember it led to shingles in 2014. Um, it led to a mental breakdown in 2011. It led to burnout last year that put me on a four month. I didn't ask to go on a sabbatical. I was told I, you need to go on a sabbatical because you're not healthy. And the elders were willing to shoulder that load. And believe me, when I got back, they're like, glad you're back. Please be healthy. Please be healthy. Mark, I'm doing my best. <laughs> uh, the, the fact is, is that our natural tendency to put our focus in upon ourselves, to have life rotate around what's going on with us. So it was one of the things that was so beneficial of just actually as elders finally deciding on what my role would be. I'm like, I don't want elder meetings to be about me. Like, it needs to be about the church and what we're doing. Uh, and I think that this is the thing. We've got to break free from the tyranny of self and the obsession of self. Worry is blind. It does not recognize God at the back of his creation, at the back of our history, as one who is over our lives. We become blind to the lessons of nature, history, and our lives when we become consumed with selfish worry. Psalm 42, 5 says, Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So what's the answer to worry? It is love of God and love of neighbor. Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 37, 39, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. That is what it means to seek the kingdom of God. It's being about God. It's being in intimacy with him. It's about knowing Christ. My sheep know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. Do you love him above anything else? And if you don't, just confess it. It's okay. Just bring that to him. You're not going to love him perfectly because you are a fallen being. And he knows that. And he isn't disappointed in you. He's crazy about you. And when you truly believe you are loved by God, it is then that you will be able to actually return the love. We love him only because he first loved us. If you don't believe that he loves you, if you believe that he's always mad at you or disappointed in you, then you are actually applying to him the grid of your own brokenness. The illusions that the world has spoken into you. The lies that the world says that God doesn't exist. He doesn't, or, and if he does, he doesn't care. It's not true. He is very involved in his world. He is perpetually speaking into his existence. The church continues to actually move forward in spite of all of its difficulties, in spite of the fact that it's built by God on the shoulders of fallen men and women. 
It's actually having the ability to actually overcome our worry is actually to have our eyes open wide enough to understand our own brokenness and our own desperate need for God and not just God, but what does Jesus go on to say? And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The kingdom of God, as Paul wrote in Romans 13, is this. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of escaping our anxiety with vices that actually give us more anxiety. No, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You guys, I've just come to realize the last three weeks, my joy was beginning to be robbed by, a, by that creeping, nagging reality, that lying voice that says, look at me, look at me, focus on me. And this is why the old self, the old man, the old woman dies hard and has an uncanny ability to resurrect itself. What we need to learn to do is to put to death the lie of what God never intended so that you can become the man, the woman that he intended, which is putting your eyes upon him. Every one look you take into your own heart, ten looks to Jesus. Look out. There's a lot of things that we could be worried about that doesn't have anything to do with us. And so often our worries are more anchored in our own self-concern and self-preservation than anything else. Listen, Jesus loves you. And he wants to give sight to the blind. Don't be blinded by the artificial needs of this world. Ask yourself, what is my supreme desire? And if the answer isn't Jesus, then repent and turn to him. Amen?